Hello, my name is Austin Habish, the founder of Think Catholic, your source for Catholic thought with both depth and devotion, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. Joining me is Dr. Alan Fimister. Hello. As today we ask, why the Church evangelizes? How is it going and where is it going? And beginning with the mind of the magisterium, here are the words of Pope St. Paul VI from Evangelii Nunciandi, Evangelization in the Modern World. Quote, Evangelism will always contain, as the foundation center and at the same time the summit of its dynamism, a clear proclamation that in Jesus Christ salvation is offered to all men as a gift of God's grace and mercy. Evangelizing is, in fact, the grace and the vocation proper to the church, her deepest identity. She exists in order to evangelize, end quote. Now, Doc, you're actually teaching the next generation of evangelists, the preachers, our parish priests at the seminary. What's the message being given to them? And hopefully the answer to our first question, why evangelize? Well, um, I can't speak for everybody, but I think that I and at least those colleagues of mine that I've discussed the question with are teaching, essentially, uh, paragraph 161 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which reads, Believing in Jesus Christ and in the one who sent him for our salvation is necessary for obtaining that salvation, since without faith it is impossible to please God and to attain the fellowship of his sons. Therefore, without faith, no one has ever attained justification, nor will anyone obtain eternal life, but he who endures to the end. It's since it's the mission of the church, since the church exists, in order to proclaim salvation, and we also know, as, as you're mentioning here, that that's the purpose that that the Word became incarnate. As St. Paul writes that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, as you're speaking of, saved through faith, faith in Christ. And since Colossians 1.18 says he's the head of the body of the church, then just as it is Jesus' mission, the Word incarnate, the salvation of men, evangelization, just as it's the mission of the head of that body, so it must be the mission of the rest of that body, which is the church, which is us. And Doc, as you know, we have a whole episode dedicated to the gospel, the necessity for faith, for salvation, the nuances tied to it. And so uh, pointing to that for our listeners, I'd like to move beyond it and ask personally, Doc, on a personal level, why? So there's the catechism. I read Evangelii Nunciandi. Why do you evangelize? Why share the Catholic faith? Well, I mean, our Lord says, woe upon me if I do not preach the gospel. I mean, I don't think I evangelize because I'm scared of going to hell if I don't evangelize. I probably should be more scared yeah. uh, than I am about that. Um, uh, I hope that I don't do it out of vain pride and the desire to be prove myself right mm. uh, by um, tying tagging on the coattails of, uh, of the uh, eternal gospel. Um, uh, I hope I'm doing it out of love of neighbor. Um, please God, that's why. Um, I, uh, I say, I, um, the, again, the catechism talks about uh, a great religious deception which will characterize uh, the end times. Um, and uh, I, half, I half suspect that the idea that uh, that 
one can be saved without faith or with faith diluted into some Pickwickian idea of general openness to spiritual sentiment uh, is the great religious deception mm. um, characteristic of the end times because I think it's done more harm to Western civilization, to individual human beings' lives, and to the church in her human aspect than any other era in the entire history of the church. I mean, uh, Pope Benedict talked about this deep double crisis, which the idea of that that faith isn't necessarily salvation has has inflicted upon the church that that it killed off evangelistic zeal and it caused Catholics to think of the fact that they are Catholic as a sort of misfortune, which uh, compels them to obey a load of rules that they'd be able to be saved without obeying if they'd only not mm -hmm. received the gospel. I think that is is, is a catastrophe, mm -hmm. and I think uh, around us the the misery of the crazy secular ideologies which are taking over people's lives and and taking over society and causing people to mutilate themselves and and to, to want to have themselves put down in clinics and all this nightmare that surrounds us i think that that derives from the light of the gospel disappearing from individual people's lives and individual people's and in and society and i think that is derived from a loss of dramatic and terrible loss in the sense of urgency to preach the gospel mm. in the lives of those who do believe. And I think it's also intensely dangerous for the individual believer. I think it can take salvation away from those who did believe if they come to believe that it's not necessary to preach the gospel. The implication of that is that if you're basically a good person, then you don't really need the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you believe that, then then you will also forfeit your own justification. Mm -hmm. That's why, um, that why St. Paul says uh, that he doesn't preach the gospel in eloquent words of worldly wisdom, lest he empty the cross of Christ of its power. Because if it were possible to know the saving truths uh, of our Lord by reason alone, that would mean that if you're basically a good person, you're saved. If you think that, then you're denying that you're really a sinner, that mm. you really need so, our Lord's yeah. death. And then essentially, so the negligence to preach the gospel to others can reflect uh, an emptying of the cross in the life of the one failing to preach. So I think this is a plague of unbelief, not only in the sense of it, it's it's causing people not to receive the gospel from lazy Christians, but it's also causing those Christians to drain their own faith of its saving power. So I, I really do think it's a, a catastrophe. Sorry to sound so upbeat. <laughs> right. Uh, what you're speaking to here, the first thing that comes to mind for me is uh, the, what is it, the bonum s diffusivo uh, sui, the good is diffusive of itself, that there is a sense, as you're speaking to here, that if one possesses faith in himself, it will naturally diffuse out of him. And so if there is no diffusion, if one does not see evalu uh, ev evangelization, excuse me, then he should start to wonder whether he's in a state of grace himself. And I, I love how the church, you, you mentioned there at the beginning, you know, let us not preach out of fear, but maybe just as there's stages of love of God, you know, that beginning, what is the, the verse, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, that maybe there is a, 
a beginning and the impetus to evangelize, which begins with a very sober realization of the responsibility placed on every single one of us by Christ in the church. That document we started with here, it continues, and maybe one of the most chilling phrases, which I often repeat, if not just to myself, those around me, and it speaks to this responsibility exactly. It goes like this, quote, It would be useful if every Christian and every evangelizer were to pray about the following thought. Men can gain salvation also in other ways, by God's mercy, even though we do not preach the gospel to them. But as for us, can we gain salvation if through negligence or fear or shame, what St. Paul called blushing for the gospel, or as a result of false ideas, we fail to preach it? For that would be to betray the call of God, who wishes the seed to bear fruit through the voice of the ministers of the gospel. And it will depend on us whether this grows into trees and produces its full fruit, end quote. And so here, uh, Pope Paul VI, he's, of course, he's, he's, uh, he's speaking to those extraordinary ways, like the good thief, in which, um, you know, one can enter into eternal life still through faith. Uh, so he mentions that here, but it's, he's really, he's putting the, the ownership and the question of salvation on the evangelist, on us, not the one we're preaching to, but on ourselves. Will we enter into heaven if we fail to do that which we've been called to by our Lord? And I I think, you know, God is not blind. He will not be sympathetic if we who know the truth bury it in the sand while those around us are burying themselves uh, in the grave. And these these sins of omission, they ought to terrify us, I think, just as much, if not more, than those sins of commission that we're always looking out for. And that's because sins of omission, they're more difficult to see, yet just as perditious. And Matthew 25 here, <laughs> talk, uh, uh, which we have uh, three parables for, and I think you and I have spoken about, there's three groups here in Matthew 25, the parable of the virgins, the talents, and then Jesus' ex- explicit description of judgment. We have three groups here sentenced to hell, and not one of them And these groups is sentenced to hell because of positive sins. It's just what they fail to do. And and Chrysostom relates, he describes, he comments on this passage as it relates to evangelization. And this may be uh, one of the most striking church father uh, quotations or excerpts that I keep with me. And I'd, I'd like to quote it at length here. He says, and this is also in the office, and so our priests and deacons are, are reading this every year. Quote, There is nothing colder than a Christian who does not seek to save others. You cannot plead poverty here. The widow putting in her two small coins will be your accuser. Peter said, Silver and gold I have not. Paul was so poor that he was often hungry, went without necessary food. You cannot plead humble birth, for they were hum- humbly born of humble stock. You cannot offer the excuse of lack of education. They were uneducated. You cannot plead ill health, for Timothy also had poor health with frequent illnesses. The selfish are fit only for punishment. Such were those foolish virgins who were chaste. They were comely. They were self-controlled, but they did nothing for anyone else. And so they're consumed in the fire. Such are those men who refuse to give Christ food. Notice that none of them is accused of personal sins. He's alluding to Matthew 25 here. They're not accused of committing fornication or perjury or any such sin at all, only of not helping 
anybody else. The man who buried the talent was like this. His life was blameless, but he was of no service to others. How can such a person be called a Christian? Tell me, if yeast did not make the whole mass like itself, is it really yeast? Again, if perfume failed to pervade all around with its fragrance, would we call it perfume? Do not say, it is impossible for me to influence others. If you are a Christian, it is impossible for this not to happen. Things found in nature cannot be denied. So it is here, for it is a question of the nature of a Christian, end quote. There's a number of places where St. Thomas considers this idea of the possibility, which is talked about in Vatican II in Ad Gentes 7, and which is then quoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church 848, of sort of extraordinary means by which the gospel could be brought to someone. Uh, so so in, in that, that quote from the Catechism and the Council, it says, though in ways known to himself, God can lead those who through no fault of their own are ignorant of the gospel to that faith, without which it is impossible to please him, the church still has the obligation and also the sacred right to evangelize all men. Now, St. Thomas talks about the idea of a child raised in the wilderness, uh, being visited by an angel. He's in, in, that's in his commentary on Romans, I think. In the Summa, he talks about um, uh, the, uh, somebody, a tomb which was opened uh, of somebody who said that, who'd clearly had a private revelation of, of, of our Lord. Um, but I mean, these are dramatic, extraordinary events. I yep, mean, um, exactly. uh, the Council of Trent, uh, when it describes what you need to believe materially in the present era, so since the Passion, um, uh, in order to be justified, it says about those who have attained the age of reason, they are disposed to that justice, that is, that is the justice in the sight of God given by the blood of Christ, when aroused and aided by divine grace, receiving faith by hearing, they are moved freely toward God, believing to be true what has been divinely revealed and promised, especially that, that and this is the key phrase, the sinner is justified by God, by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, Austin, but I have not met many people who believe that the sinner is justified by God, by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, as a result of an angelic revelation. Right. Um, right. Every, every person that I've met believes that because somebody preached it to them. Yep. Right? Um, so, I mean, to say that, oh, it's okay because people who, without fault of their own, are ignorant of, of the gospel can, through ways known to God alone, have it revealed to them, is like saying, you know, seeing your neighbor drowning in the river and they're saying, oh, it's okay, mate. I'm sure God, if he wanted to, could send you an angel yep. to fish you out of the river yep. right? that just makes you you know that that's it's not i mean it's i mean obviously you're guilty of the death of that man i mean there's no there's no two ways about it like saint john chrysostom says i mean it's it's and it's the most spectacular sin of omission because they're not just burying themselves they're burying themselves in sheol as as uh, our lord says in the uh, story of lazarus hmm. and the rich man hmm. i mean yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, 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 yeah, as I say, we don't, don't want to do it. We shouldn't be preaching the gospel because we're frightened of going to hell. But the obligation is, is, is as grave as it gets. The, the fate which is handed out to people through not hearing the gospel is unimaginably terrible. And of course, people think, oh, yes, but surely people are not guilty 
if they never heard it, well, that's great. They're not guilty of rejecting the gospel, but they're guilty of breaking all the other. Yeah, everything else. Yeah. Just like I am, yeah. and you are. Yeah. Right. So there's so there's no, and and they don't have the blood of Christ to wash them away. So those sins to wash them away. The, the mercy of God is not just, right? it's merciful. That's the whole point. Mm. Everybody deserves to go to hell. Mm. Uh, so, you know, and the, the only people who don't, it's because they were, they were baptized as infants, you know, sort of miracles of grace, like St. Dominic or St. Therese, um, who, 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 you know, only ever committed venial or possibly no sins. Right? That's because they already received the gospel through the sacraments before they attained to the age of reason. Um, so everybody else, uh, has earned their own damnation many times over, quite independently of whether or not they've committed the sin of incredulity, the sin of rejecting positive revelation. The, the positive revelation is an unearned pardon. Mm-hmm. I think one of the problems that, that that Catholics have fallen into, sleepwalked into really, is that we have a tendency to um, slightly obsess with with the with the rejection of certain errors which have been condemned by the church to the point that we start to neglect the elements of those true of those errors which were true and i think that's been particularly serious with protestantism because martin luther distorted certain truths about the unearned nature of salvation we have kind of slipped into a kind of pelagianism ironically um, rejecting Martin Luther's false doctrine of justification by faith alone has caused too many Catholics to forget the true doctrine of justification by faith. And yeah. and that is that really seriously needs to be being preached. Mm-hmm. And I, for those listening, again, I would refer back to that gospel podcast for, for some of these pieces that we're, we're kind of assuming as we, we speak to one another about the necessity of salvation and the, how devastating sin is and what it really looks like in God's eyes. I would ask those people who may, through no, um, or may fall into this temptation to say, well, well they're, everyone's fine. Everyone's going to be okay. You know, everyone, they're doing, they're doing well. They'll do the right thing. I... I think when we ask the question of how likely is it that this person, you know, born on an island through no fault of their own, they follow conscience and then God would not abandon them. But if we look into our own lives, just how difficult it is to follow our own conscience, right? To do what we know is correct at every moment of the day or at every day. And then to realize for the Catholics who are listening, to realize that we struggle and we have the helps of the sacraments. So we have the divine indwelling. We, we receive God's flesh and blood in the Eucharist. We've been confirmed in the Spirit. So we have these just unbelievable helps. I mean, mysterious beyond our imagination, really, assisting us to do the good. And yet every day is a struggle for us. If that's the case for us, I mean, what can we realistically expect for those who go without that aid, without that assistance? As Jesus says, if you would enter into life, follow the commandments. You know, so, so just to have a very realistic picture. And then, you know, what is the motivation for evangelization? Of course, it is, it is that it is the gratitude. This is what I have received, okay, gratuitously. And so in gratitude to God, I should share it with others. I should give 
you know, without counting the cost, just as Jesus did. Gratitude. And in, in the last piece, as I, as I think about this motivation for evangelization, it's, it's to realize that in giving, that, that redounds back on us. So Brant Petrie, he tells, uh, in one of his books that escapes me, he says, if someone asked me what I had for breakfast two weeks ago, I would have no clue. I would not answer that question. But if someone asked me to give a three-hour lecture on the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, the foreshadowing in the Old Testament of the true presence, he said, I can do that right now with zero preparation because I've been doing it every week or every month for the last who knows how many years. And so there, when we give, whether it's the knowledge of the faith or we give in charity love or whatever peace and joy has been given to us, it comes back to us. So there are components of it that require great self-denial, selflessness, but the Lord, as he says in his word, the laborer deserves his wages. You know, the Lord, he repays the evangelist, even in this life, uh, for the work done. This, this next question, Doc, is, you know, speaking of sins of omission, sadly, how, how would we say Catholic evangelization is currently going in America? How are we doing? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, if you look at the statistics, it's pretty terrible. The church is hemorrhaging people, and we're not we're not gaining them very fast at all. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, Doc, yeah. as, as you're speaking about hemorrhaging, I would say uh, Pew Research, and maybe this is the one of the stats that you might be thinking of if you ran into before. It says this is Pew Research in 2018 says. By contrast, 2% of U.S. adults are converts to Catholicism, people who now identify as Catholic after being raised in another religion or no religion. This means that there are 6.5 former Catholics in the U.S. for every convert to the faith. So for every one person who becomes Catholic, about seven exit. And it goes on to say, it says... Uh, no other religious group has experienced anything close to this ratio of losses to gains via religious switching. So the hemorrhaging, I know, knocking doors, I'm, I'm, probably the majority of the people I meet are was Catholics. They're fallen That's away terrible. Catholics. And, uh, you know, so I hear that stat, and then at the same time, yeah. I think about all the apostolates, that are creeping up. You had Ascension Presents, that's your Father Mike Schmitz in 2014. You have Word on Fire did uh, its Catholicism in 2011. We have the Augustine Institute 2005. We have Focus in 1999. So so I don't know. You know, I so I see these numbers in 2018. I see this, it looks like kind of a revival in the last 20 years or so of Catholic apostolates. Uh, but, you know, and then at the same time, I, yeah. I read the end of Scripture, and it, it doesn't look so positive, right? <laughs> the end of the story. Yeah, I, mean, so. uh, yeah, I, I saw this, this uh, interview a, a year ago or something with somebody who was writing a doctorate on the idea that you can be saved by um, basically a, a willingness to believe whatever God must reveal, right? This is one of the more extreme forms of of this era of implicitism, which has caused so much damage. And, um, and the guy was saying that, uh, that when, you know, years ago, 50, 60, 70 years ago, 
when this idea started to become fashionable. So it's interesting he dates it to that, which I think he's right about, because uh, Fenton, famous, Monsignor Fenton, famous American theologian of the mid-20th century, he was writing an article in the late 50s, and he was saying that it was uh, the majority position of theologians that you had to believe in the Trinity and the Incarnation in order to be justified, right? So he, so clearly it was still a minority position in this era um, in the late 50s. Um, but this guy was saying when people started uh, pushing this idea, um, they uh, they did it because they worried about all the good non non Christians who they worried might be lost, right? Mm. You know the nice the nice Sikh neighbour that they had or whatever. As I say, this I think this is a mirage, right? Because you're assuming that that you're nice and that person's nice and nice people go to heaven, mm-hmm. and basically that's a Pelagian perspective, yep. which which is derived from a, a failure to face your own sinfulness. Um, but the but but he said, but now congregations of christians and catholics are completely clueless about the doctrines of the trinity of the incarnation so so now it's really important for us to believe that people can be saved without knowing any of the important revealed truths because if that weren't true then then most christians would be going to hell as well because wow. they don't know anything about the principal revealed truths either and i was wow. thinking well you know oh, yes Jeez. well that's there's, there's something going on there, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, wow. like, like, um, like uh, Pope Benedict said, once you, once you abandon the need to evangelize others, you lose the imperative to even inform yourself about the faith. As Alfred the Great said, uh, the first king of England, uh, when he was considering why his country had just almost been wiped out by pagan Vikings, he said, remember what temporal punishment came upon us when we neither loved wisdom ourselves nor allowed it to others. So he, he believed that, that the English were almost extinguished as a culture because God let the title, if you don't go to the pagans, he brings the pagans to you. That's a <laughs> general, general, um, Rule. general principle mm. throughout history. And I think uh, it's important you say about all these apostolates and, and potential for revival, but it's important to remember that if uh, I think what we were talking about at the beginning, that if you don't believe that the gospel is necessary for salvation, then in a way you're not really preaching it. You don't have it yourself, mm-hmm. and you're not giving it to others. And our Lord says that when he talks about the Pharisees, he says, you know, they cross land and sea to make a single proselyte, and they make him twice as much a child of hell as themselves. Because if you think that the gospel is simply a help to salvation, or a sort of interesting fact to know about how you were going to be saved anyway, yep. even if you hadn't been told it, right? Then what you're doing is you're preaching the law. You're not preaching grace. You're, it's typhoid Mary ecclesiology. You're bringing death to the nations mm, yeah. by telling them about additional precepts that they wouldn't otherwise have been subject to. Um, so, so, so that, so, and, and clearly our Lord says it clearly, the Pharisees crossed land and sea to make a single proselyte. So it's possible to, as it were, be a hired man rather than a shepherd to think that the, the preaching of the gospel is supererogatory, right? That it's, that it's a particularly splendid thing for you to do above and beyond what's really necessary for people to be saved and for you to be saved. You're actually preaching the gospel. Mm. So, so you, you're, you're a hired man because you think that 
that, that, that you're doing this because it, it's a particularly impressive thing for you to do, not a terrifying necessity for your and the person you're speaking to's salvation, right? Uh, but just because you're a, a jolly fine person mm -hmm. who wants to share these things with somebody else. And if you think that's true, then you are bringing to them the death-dealing law, not the liberating gospel of grace. Only if it's necessary is it liberating. So you're saying on the one hand that they're not being justified by saving faith, and at the same time, you are illuminating the true law, you know, the precepts that they have to follow, but, you know, it's not helping them, it's just adding to their culpability. Uh, just many things that uh, you've, you've mentioned, the, the one that always strikes me is that C.S. Lewis makes this comment about the more good a person becomes, the less good that he sees himself. And setting aside the abstract of that, you know, does the equation, does the math work out on that? I would say in my own personal experience that it has seemed like those people, okay, that a, that a general consensus would say, well, I, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't consider that person a saint, you know, not as upstanding a person, that it's, it's that group that always seems most certain that they are, you know, I'm a good person and I'm doing good and I'm just, and so there is something so incredibly true, you know, contrition is, it is a sign of, of a kind of, of holiness uh, that, that one is, is constantly repenting, that one sees the need of a savior. And then the opposite is also true as, as sanctifying grace leaves the soul or one moves farther and farther away from God into the darkness, the harder it is to see one's own, you know, depravity, the light isn't there for one to detect it, which has always just been so shocking to me, kind of that paradox, how that's worked out. So evangelization, where, where is it going, Doc? Where, where must it go in America for the Catholic Church? Well, I mean, uh, 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 one of my colleagues at Holy Apostles, who appropriately enough teaches uh, apocalyptic literature, I, um, I heard him, a sermon he gave many years ago, he used to give, and um, no doubt still does give, extremely pithy short sermons. And uh, in this one he said, um, he said, uh, people often falsely attribute a statement to St. Francis, uh, um, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Yeah. Um, and he said, he said, if um, as if you think that anyone is going to be converted by your works, then you're going to hell for the sin of presumption. <laughs> I would start preaching using words <laughs> if on. I was Got him. <laughs> if I were you. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it seems to me, uh, um, Saint John Henry Newman um, uh, said um, in his uh, in his uh, Beato speech. Um, uh, which is uh, his um, the speech that he gave when he was made a cardinal. Um, he uh, he famously he's talked about what he he devoted his entire life to the overthrow of liberalism, and uh, and he said you know the, he describes towards the end of the speech the terrible state of growing unbelief in England at the time in the late nineteenth century, and he says, but in fact there is it's not rocket science. All the church has to do is do what she's supposed to do, which is preach, sanctify, and govern. Mm -hmm. um, all it has to do is preach the gospel without fear or favor. Um, 
administer the sacraments in accordance with the law and the traditions of the church and conform our lives to the gospel and then uh, people will convert um, Catholic communities will revive mm -hmm. the tidal wave of of, of uh, unnatural and irrational vice and error that's sweeping through society will start to dissipate and be reversed. Mm -hmm. He said, commonly the church has nothing more to do than to go on in her own proper duties in confidence and peace to stand still and see the salvation of God. Now there's this, it's important, there's this dangerous uh, great composer temptation which is you know all great composers were rejected in their lifetime i am rejected in my lifetime therefore i am a great composer uh, uh, right? <laughs> fallacy so in the same way our lord tells us in in john 17 you know that, that uh, you know the world is going to hate you just like it hated me right um but so the fact that you're deeply unpopular doesn't mean that you're preaching the gospel but if you're not deeply unpopular you're not preaching the gospel and you have to realize that right you're, you're not seeking to alienate people you're seeking to convert people but but you know the the powers of this world will rise up against the preaching of the gospel and if they don't if then you're probably not preaching the gospel or, or i might venture to say certainly not preaching the gospel um again newman says uh he says, uh, if you'll permit me an extended quote. Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, na nature is one with nature, grace with grace. He's rebuking Catholics in his own time. He says, the world then witnesses against you by being good friends with you. You could not have got on with the world so well without surrendering something which was precious and sacred. Hmm. The world likes you. All but your professed creed distinguishes you from your creed in its judgment of you and would fain separate you from it in fact. Men say, these persons are better than their church. We have not a word to say for their church, but Catholics are not what they were. They are very much like other men now. Mm -hmm. Their creed certainly is bigoted and cruel, but what would you have of them? You cannot expect them to confess this. Let them change quietly. No one changes in public. Be satisfied that they are changed. They are as fond of the world as we are. They take up political objects as warmly. They like their own way just as well. They do not like strictures a whit better. They hate spiritual thraldom, and they are half ashamed of the Pope and his councils. Mm. They hardly believe any miracles now and are annoyed when their own brethren confess that there are such. Mm. They never speak of purgatory. They are sore about images. They avoid the subject of indulgences. They will not commit themselves to the doctrine of exclusive salvation. The Catholic doctrines now are mere badges of party. Catholics think for themselves and judge for themselves just as we do. They are kept in their church by a point of honour and a reluctance at seeming to abandon a fallen cause. Such is the judgment of the world, and you, my brethren, are shocked to hear it. But may it not be that the world knows more about you than you know about yourselves, if ye had been of the world, says Christ, the world would love its own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. So speaks Christ of his apostles. How run his words when applied to you? If ye be of the world, the world will love its own. Therefore ye are of the world, and I have not chosen you out of the world, because the world doth love you. 
Do not complain of the world's imputing to you more than is true. Those who live as the world lives give countenance to those who think them of the world and seem to form but one party with them. In proportion, as you put off the yoke of Christ, so does the world, by a sort of instinct, recognise you and think well of you accordingly. Its highest compliment is to tell you that you disbelieve. O oh, my brethren, there is an eternal enmity between the world and the church. The church declares by the mouth of an apostle, whoso will be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And the world retorts and calls the church apostate, sorceress, Beelzebub and Antichrist. She is the image and mother of the predestinate. And if you would be found among her children when you die, you must have part in her reproach while you wow. live. That's that's beautiful. No, thank you for sharing, Doc. The the words that come to mind from the gospel, Jesus says, "Where I am, there will my servant be." Jesus you know, lived a life of sorrows, you know, crucified. Uh, beware when all speak well of you, as they did the false prophets. And then, I remember I was at Starbucks, not to say anything of Starbucks in particular, but I was <laughs> I was at a Starbucks and they had this uh, like kind of a whiteboard or chalkboard, and they had put april the calendar of april on it and then some important dates in april and here were some of those dates they had uh, the jewish passover i suppose they had ramadan they had it was uh, like transgender awareness appreciation or something like that and then that was it you know so <laughs> there's something missing from the month of april right there's a particular religion that has been left off this calendar and it's just hard for me to believe that that was an oversight since they got all you know ramadan's on there and passover's on there so yeah that's the, great because that means that they they're twitchy because they, they the, the one thing they don't want to talk about is yeah. the truth amen they oh. know it's the truth people always used to say um, I used, when I was a, when I was in my twenties, people used to say, my friends at university, that that the um, that it's amazing that the one doctrine that you never ever ever hear a sermon about is the immorality of artificial contraception, and it's the one doctrine which everybody in the entire country knows the Catholic Church teaches. Wow. Um, huh. So I mean, it's 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 amazing that that the more clear you are. And the more rage it inspires in people who are imprisoned by the world and who we are sent to liberate, the more they know about uh, about the uh, about those doctrines. Um, in um, on the 18th of September, uh, three, two, four, Constantine the Great won the Battle of Chrysopolis, which was the uh, the last battle he fought before he became the sole emperor of the entire Roman Empire. This is, of course, the first Christian emperor, Constantine. And uh, according to Eusebius of Caesarea, who's not entirely impartial, but nevertheless, it's mm -hmm. an interesting claim. He says that Licinius, the pagan emperor who Constantine was fighting against, he instructed his soldiers under no circumstances to attempt to attack directly or even look at the banner of the cross carried wow. by Constantine's army mm. um, because he thought that that would cause his sure defeat. Mm. And I think there's something very profound about that. That is, that is what the evil one is most concerned to do, Le to have that list of dates on that board with the one <laughs> glaring omission, yep. right? That you, they must not directly assault 
or for fear that that causes them to look at and therefore be converted by the banner of the cross. So we have to plant the banner of the cross deep in enemy territory mm. so that there is no possibility of people averting their gaze from it. And then by the very nature of the holy and life-giving cross, it will triumph. As uh, as many people have seen over the years, and it's been part of my own story and God willing many stories to come, the obstinacy of the Catholic faith in the midst of the upheaval of society, of traditional morals, will always point to its veracity, that this is where God is. As God is immutable, so is his body, the church. I wonder if it's Pascal who says, there is a certain pleasure to be found in watching waves crash against a boat you know cannot sink. And I do, I do, you know, rightly or wrongly, there is a kind of joy to be found in seeing the church as she has always been, no matter where the culture goes. And maybe it's that Carthusian stamp on my heart, the stat crooks, that the cross stands still, the world turns, it rotates, you know, it says left today, it'll say right tomorrow, and but the church will always be the same. Where must evangelization go? I have to say it has to go to the streets. It has to go into the neighborhood. Christus Dominus, this is Vatican II, It says, quote, the care of souls should always be infused with the missionary spirit so that it reaches out as it should to everyone living within the parish boundaries. If the pastor cannot contact certain groups of people, he should seek the assistance of others, even laymen who can assist him him in the apostolate, end quote. So Catholics cannot expect in the 21st century for people to move towards the church. The church has to move towards them. And that means going into our neighborhoods, saying hello, praying for people, seeing what good works we can do, what charitable acts we can do for those around us to witness Christ as Christ was witnessed in that early Rome when the plague hit and the Christians stayed in the city and they took care of the people around them. And I just, what's today? Uh, Thursday, just on Wednesday, I believe, we I went knocking doors in the neighborhood and a woman opened the door, not religious. And she had her two-year-old daughter, two- or three-year-old daughter, and she asked about having her daughter baptized. She wants her child to be baptized. She's not religious. She told me she's not against religion. She's not for religion. But for whatever reason, the Lord has put in her heart the salvation of her child. Now, we have to ask ourselves, if the Catholic doesn't come to her door, you know, what, what do we expect is going to be the outcome of that desire? Should we anticipate yeah. that that desire is going to grow and enlarge and in the culture that we live in today, over time? Like, is that realistic? We have to go out. God has already planted the seed, but we have to be there because faith comes through what is heard. And what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ, Romans ten seventeen. And so the saints, they hungered and they thirsted that men might know God, that they might come to God. We have to test our works because they're going to show our heart, our faith. You know, how greatly do we desire the salvation of those living around us? Are we willing to be uncomfortable for their sake? Are we willing to sacrifice, whether it's saying in our Father, in our, our room as Jesus taught, or fasting, or other penance? You know, how, how much do we love God? To the extent we love God, we're going to love our neighbor in God, seeing our neighbor in God. Uh, final thoughts, Doc? Um, I... Uh... I mentioned Alfred the Great before, 
and you know his comments in his commentary on uh, his translation of uh, I think it's uh, the Consolation of Philosophy, but um, there's a Ch G.K. Chesterton's one of his greatest works is a is an epic poem about him about Alfred the Great called um, the Ballad of the White Horse, and um, uh, there's a there's uh, and it's set at the at the darkest moment when Alfred probably had that thought about um, about uh, the temporal punishment that came upon us when we neither loved wisdom ourselves nor allowed it to others. And uh, it describes in, in colourful, in imagined tones, uh, the, the the visions. He did have a series of visions, Alfred, um, uh, when he was, he was literally, the, he was on his own. He'd lost his entire kingdom, effectively. He's living, hiding on an island in a swamp. Uh, <laughs> and so he managed to turn it round from that point but various saints appeared to him and, and in the ballad of the white horse our lady appears to him and um uh, and he asks her you know is, is it going to get better am i going to beat the vikings and uh, she says some um, it's very beautiful what she says to him in the poem she says uh, he's she says the gates of heaven are lightly locked we do not guard our gain the heaviest hind may easily come silently and suddenly upon me in a lane. And any little maid that walks in good thoughts apart may break the guard of the three kings and see the dear and dreadful things I hid within my heart. The meanest man in grey fields gone behind the set of sun heareth between star and other star through the door of the darkness fallen ajar the council eldest of the things that are the talk of the three in one the gates of heaven are lightly locked we do not guard our gold men may uproot where worlds begin or read the name of the nameless sin but if he fail or if he win to no good man is told the men of the east may spell the stars and times and triumphs mark, but the men signed of the cross of Christ go gaily in the dark. The men of the east may search the scrolls for sure fates and fame, but the men that drink the blood of God go singing to their shame. The wise men know what wicked things are written on the sky. They trim sad lamps, they touch sad straight strings, hearing the heavy purple wings where the forgotten seraph kings still plot how God shall die. The wise men know all evil things under the twisted trees where the perverse in pleasures pine and, sick, and men are weary of green wine and sick of crimson seas. But you and all the kind of Christ are ignorant and brave and you have wars you hardly win and souls you hardly save. I tell you naught for your comfort, yea, naught for your desire, save that the sky grows darker yet and the sea rises higher. Now, I know that sounds despairing. Wow, bleak, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but in fact, what she's saying is just fight, fight on and, and take, because she doesn't want him she, his question is wrong he he doesn't it's not about beating the vikings about saving their souls mm -hmm. that's what the that's what um that's what he realized um the real alfred not just in the poem in real life realized seek ye first the kingdom of god and his justice and these other things will be added unto you but don't seek the other things <laughs> don't think yes therefore i should i must seek the kingdom of god because i need those other things right no. it has to be zeal for 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 the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the love of the holy and life giving cross, and the desire to impart it to others, mm. um, and everything else is is 
is irrelevant mm -hmm. and 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 god will be happy to provide you with it if necessary what do we have to lose uh, jesus says he who loses his life will save it so let us go out even if it entails the loss of all temporal to gain that which is eternal for ourselves and for those around us who do not yet know christ yet are dying without him lord give us the grace uh, to be sent so in obedience to christ who said quote the harvest is plentiful but the labors are few Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest, and quote, then let us pray. And also those listening, that God may send us, send Dr. Femister and I, and then those listening, all of the baptized who have been called to make disciples of the nations to evangelize. This is Think Catholic. My name is Austin Habish, along with Dr. Alan Femister, and thanks again for joining us.